All right. So grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job. Job. I knew someone was going to say Job. And I would have probably put money on it being Ted. So Job. Turn to Job. We are most of the way through Job. We're over halfway. And we'll actually be two more weeks after tonight in Job because there's really only two more sections. And we have actually slowed down and done this much, much more meticulously than I planned, even though it may still feel like we're, we're walking through Job quickly. Um, Job is a little hard to break down any more than we have, but very interesting things have happened so far. So let's, let's review what's happened in the book of Job. So a few just reminders. Job is one of the oldest stories um, of Judaism. And when I say Judaism, I, I realize I say that term a lot. And I was saying that the other day and somebody asked me, like, what in the world do you mean? Judaism is just the system of religion in the Old Testament before it became Christianity and the New Testament. So I'm talking about their belief system as a culture, as a people, um, as they're receiving revelation from God. They don't have everything we have. We look back on a completed Old Testament. We also look back on a completed New Testament. So a lot of times when I say the word Judaism, I'm talking about the people living in the moment who didn't have everything. And so that's kind of how I use the term when I say that. So Judaism in its early days, where they're developing their culture, where God is giving them these kind of first snippets of revelation, they're working on the canon. This is one of the earliest writings that's going to go into the canon. Um, this, what's, this is what's going on in their system. And they're asking a very important question. And what's interesting to me is it's, in a sense, it is one of the first questions. We still wrestle with this question today. And as much as we want a hard, fast answer, the Bible gives us um, not an answer, but a promise more than anything. And the basic question is just what's called today the problem of evil. How can God be good? How can God be all powerful and yet there be evil in the world? And so this is the first question. Job is really designed to answer that question, which is, we haven't said the word in a while, but the first word at the top of your page, theodicy, it's just a fancy term for a defense of God in light of evil. Just theos, God, DC is just. Is God just is the question that's being answered when we do a theodicy. And so that's what the book of Job is answering. So we take this historical character and we're kind of looking at him from a bigger picture than he has himself. He doesn't know all the details we know as the story is progressing. So we start out with this heavenly scene. So quick review, the introduction of the book is really the first three chapters. So in this introduction, the heavenly scene, Job is presented for testing. Now it's important to note who does the presenting of Job? God does. And who does Job get presented to? Satan. So God takes Job and says to Satan, have you considered, have you considered my servant Job? And nobody like Job. What do you think about him? Of course, what's Satan's response? He's only faithful because you've put a hedge around him. You've protected him. You've blessed him. You've, you've given him everything he could possibly ever want, desire, have. We find out in tonight's text that it's not just local. I mean, the community respected him. He's the local hero, not just the local righteous guy. He's the well-respected, almost like a war veteran kind of respect um, he's got in the community. He's that guy. And Satan says, well, take it all away and let's see what happens. So God does that, takes everything away. So earthly scenes, like a bar, Job loses kids and possession. How many kids? Ten. Ten. Seven sons, three daughters. Loses all kids, all possessions. 
But then he still blesses the Lord. What's his famous quotation after that first testing? Right. I got both answers, both parts. So the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. So either way, blessed be the name of the Lord. And blessed is the opposite of what word? Cursed, Cursed, which is what Satan said Job would do. So Satan's wrong. Job has held fast his integrity. So scene two, chapter two. Job is presented again, exact same scenario, except an extra phrase that um, he still maintains his righteousness, even though you incited me to harm him without cause. So very clear that Job is being harmed for what reason? From Job's perspective, no reason, period. No reason whatsoever in Job's life that this evil has come upon him. Satan says, yeah, but... You can draw that net a little tighter, and Job will curse you. And so tighter means including Satan can touch what now? His body. His, his body. So that's what happens. Except that what's the one thing Satan can't do? Take, Take his life. So he gets sick. I mean, it's horribly sick. And his wife says, just curse God and die. He says, no, you're speaking like a fool. And then he asks a famous question. And what's the question? The Job asked, it's kind of his... Well, he'll get to why me. Why me's next. Before, he's still still in his, you know that when you're in the shock stage, it's easy to be faithful right in the heat of the moment because it hadn't all settled in yet. He's in that moment and he's being faithful. He says, should we receive good from the Lord and not evil? And then it says, and in this, Job still did not sin with his lips. So he's received it either way. Showing, therefore, that he has what towards the Lord? Reverence. I'll take reverence. Loyalty is the word I was thinking, but either way, works. And the biblical term that we're going to see several times is Job loses his health but still maintains his integrity. Integrity. Now, we have a tendency to define integrity um, basically as what you do when no one's looking, which has a, a legitimate... I guess connotation to it, but in Job in particular, integrity might be better understood as loyalty. His his loyalty towards the Lord is sure. So loyalty, there's a sense in which it's is he loyal to the Lord when no one's looking, or in other words, is he loyal to the Lord when things are bad? Is the real question at hand. And so that's how we're using the word integrity. So he's maintaining his integrity. Then chapter three. Throw in there a few weeks later, and then you get that whole chapter of Job cursing the day he was born. And if you want to read a very, very passionate lament, Job chapter 3 is the place to go. In fact, Jeremiah, after spending a night in the stocks in the middle of town, and himself was suffering, he quotes from Job chapter 3. He was like, okay, I know what Job was talking about. This is how I feel today. Um, So you maybe had a day like that. Um, But that's where he's at. So it it was easy to say, blessed be the name of the Lord at the beginning. A few weeks later, he still has integrity towards the Lord, but he's mad at the Lord. You can do both at the same time. Um, Job will still get in trouble in a sense for it, but it's it's different than being disloyal. Then we went through the cycle of dialogue. So we finished that last week, 4 through 25. So it's um, two chapters of dialogue. And what I mean by dialogue is Eliphaz speaks, Job speaks, 
Bildad speaks, Job speaks, Zophar speaks, Job speaks. One cycle. Repeat that cycle again, a full second time. And then the third time we do the cycle, it makes it to Bildad. And Bildad gets like three verses. And if you remember the summary of Bildad's concluding statement last week, does anybody remember? You're a maggot. That's basically his encouragement to Job. Um, Job, you're, you're a maggot. And that's where we left off. And we're picking up with now Job defending himself against that statement. But just to summarize the dialogue. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they take turns attacking Job's character in defense of God. Job responds in defense of his character, placing the blame on God. And he's blaming God for his wrong. Now, let's think that through for just a second as we continue forward. Is Job wrong in blaming God for all the misfortune that has come? No, no he's not. We, we know this because of the first two chapters. We know specifically that God did evil to him. That's the exact phrasing of the text. God has brought evil on Job. He has done these things to Job without cause. And now Job... So the friends are basically making some sort of claim around the idea that, Job, you've sinned. And how do they know Job has sinned? Right. So what they're basically doing is they're defending God by restricting God's character or restricting his power, restricting his freedom, so to speak. They're saying there's no way under any circumstances God would ever... Let the innocent suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, you're not innocent. But we know the full story. Is Job innocent? Well, he is. And he is suffering. So Job is not wrong to make the claim, I'm innocent, and to further make the claim, God did this. Both of those are correct. So what's wrong with Job is only his attitude towards the Lord in the preceding and following dialogue. Does that make sense? He's not technically You can say the right thing in the wrong way. You ever done that? Happens in marriages all the time. You have a disagreement, and it doesn't matter if you were right. The way you said it was wrong. You know, just, there's an attitude in there. Let's take the attitude out. Um, but Job definitely has the attitude. But he also, at the same time, he's got the attitude. He's the one who's actually defending God accurately throughout the whole narrative. He's, yeah, God, God is just, certainly, but he's done this, and I was innocent. He's not speaking falsely against God. So with all that in mind, now let's dive into Job's <coughs> final defense. Now, Job is not going to say anything meaningful again after what we go over tonight. He will speak again, but it'll be very short because God shows up and speaks, and Job is like, okay, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry, my bad. And that's about the fullness of his statement. So right now, this is the last time Job is going to be witty. It's the last time Job is going to be dramatic. And it's the last time Job's going to be the one holding the microphone, kind of in charge at the podium sort of presentation. Because next time, it's like he's cowering on the ground and and kind of shielding his face from the Almighty and and kind of getting out the words he can. You understand the difference? So that's the last thing Job is going to have to say from that perspective. We won't read every verse. But we will read a lot of this. And for the most part, this does divide neatly into chapters, which is unlike most books of the Bible. But uh, this one this one does. So whoever added these chapters did a better job than whoever added chapters in some other sections. So here we go. Job 26, 
Then Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power. So is he commending them for how much they've helped him? Now, very sarcastic here. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. And I love my translation, exclamation point. Again, sarcasm. He's not grateful in any sense for what's happened. With whose help you have uttered words and whose breath has come out from you. All right, he's making a transition. Where would their wisdom, hopefully, in this best case scenario, where would their wisdom come from? God. So he's going to transition to that. Verse 5. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol, and what's Sheol? Literally the grave. It's just, and where do you, where's the grave kind of in their worldview? Really in ours too, but where, where's the grave? Under the ground. Literally, you, you put, put it in the ground. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. Well, we're not talking literal here. What, what, what do we mean? What, what's the point of what Job is saying? That Sheol is naked and Abaddon, the destruction... Um, has no covering. Nothing's hidden. So in other words, we're we're ascribing what attribute to God right now? I, well, I think the first one you said was right. What did you say? Omniscience, yes. Omniscience. So we'll cover that in just a second. So let's finish the chapter and we'll fill in those blanks. So he sees all that. He stretches out the north over the void. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon. He spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Now this is a Canaanite deity who in their worldview was part responsible for parts of creation. And Job is ascribing total sovereignty over anything the Canaanite worldview would have. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeting serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So if we use our modern lingo, Job has just described three of God's attributes. We already named one of them. Let's see, where did I put mine? So one of them was omniscience. All powerful. Well, but yeah, all powerful is the next one. But what is omniscience? Anybody know what science means? Sees everything. Knowledge. Science is the word for knowledge, actually. So all knowing. Which was the whole idea of Sheol. Not even the grave is beyond God's knowledge. Even destruction, things that are, that's not beyond his knowledge. He knows it all. And he's omnipotent. Which is all powerful. And so most of the description there is describing his omnipotence. It's thinking mainly in terms of his creative power or his power over the created world. How far does the water go? 
however far he told it to. What about the, the stars in heaven? They rest on the foundation he made. It's all his work. There's nothing in all of that that is beyond his spoken ability to manipulate. And then, of course, we end, and I love this one, um, verse 14. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. What's the idea there? All right, not the word I was going for, but it's the right idea. Infinite. There's an E on that, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to put it there. If I put it there, is there? I think there is, isn't there? Oh, sorry. That's the kind of stuff that gets me. Infinite. You hear the lingo there? How small a whisper do we hear of him? Compared to what? All of creation declares his glory. And that's but a faint whisper of the reality beyond. You follow what I'm saying? That's... That's the infinity of God. So Job is clearly describing God in positive terms. Right? So this is his part of his defense. Step one is who is God? God is God. No, no bones about it. There's no caveats, no disclaimers. This is the God Job serves. Now let's start in verse chapter 27. And again, Job took up his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. All right, what's his attitude here? He's blaming God. So for Job, he's only got one category. God's responsible. Something happens, who's responsible? God's responsible. If God's totally sovereign, then you really can't give any category where God's not in some way culpable for what has happened. This is Job's position. So he's done all of this. As long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood. I'll let that sink in. What's he saying? He's really saying the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord either way. You see, it's, it's an echo of the thing he said at the beginning. It's a more refined, it's a more real-world version of that echo. It's not the cheery, bright-eyed, you know, oh, well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be his name. It's more like, the Lord did take away. It's gone. But these lips aren't going to swear falsehood. I'm not going to utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you were right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. What's he doing with that integrity? Hadn't budged a bit. His integrity is steadfast. Question. So can I ask a question about my integrity? Do yeah. You, do you, you know, how much of his faith, like was that all his will? Or, I mean, was it just, did God Sure. Okay. So that that's there's a sense in which that's a New Testament question. So at this point in the narrative of Job, we're not technically dealing with soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. So in New Testament lens, Job's not doing any of this apart from a regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. We know all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
we're dead in trespasses and sins until God wakes us up. So, like, with that New Testament lingo, I can look back and say, well, Job is clearly born again. And this is not the carnal version of Job that just, through own sheer willpower, chose to be good. No, God is, God's done a work in him. But in Job, that's not really the question that's being asked. So it's, he's just not going there. All right, so he'll hold fast his integrity, and my heart does not reproach me for any of my days. What does that mean? My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. No regret? All right. How might we say that in English? Have a clear, has a clear conscience. That's exactly what he's saying. So he, he sleeps well at night in terms of he doesn't regret what he's done. He can look back over life and say, I did the right thing. I've been faithful to the Lord. I've been righteous. I've held fast my integrity. So James, Job claims to have a clear conscience. Now, the next section, and we'll go through that quickly. Um, the rest of that chapter, basically, he says exactly what the friends have been saying the whole time in that if you were wicked, God will destroy you. And remember, may remember a few chapters back, Job did have that whole chapter on, well, you look around at the wicked, the wicked people in the world, and what do they have a tendency to look like? They tend to be on the top of the social ladder. Well, how do they get to the top? Stepping over the people. <laughs> Treachery, right? They're, it's easy to raise yourself up if you kill a bunch of folks, pile up the bodies, and stand on top of them. Job's saying he looks around the world. I see that everywhere. The wicked are prospering around every corner. Yeah, here we are in his final defense. He's still saying, yeah, but God's just. He's going to destroy the wicked. So Job agrees that God punishes the wicked. Now we know that Job's perspective has gotten a little bigger than just this side of life. What did he include in chapter 19? You remember? Resurrection. The resurrection. My Redeemer lives and I will yet, even after my flesh is dead and going away, yet in my flesh I will see him. He will vindicate me. He adds this resurrection piece, but he's still saying in the end, the wicked die. In the end, the wicked perish. Now, let's jump to chapter 28. This one's good. So surely there is a mine for, sh- ugh, for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. So what's this a reference to? What, what industry? This is mining. Metal. So we're making metal. So the idea here is we think in terms of world history, how big a deal is that 3,000 years ago? Well, 4,000 years ago for Job. It's a big, this is like talking about self-driving cars and your Tesla or, or cloud computing or, you know, AI technology taking over. Like this is his, this is his cutting edge technology. So who would he be praising? What are you praising when you praise technology? The achievement of man, exactly. So that's what he's praising. So man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in the valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, 
Out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. So he's really just, you know, elaborately here just describing the glory of being able to dig into the earth. And man, you know, puts an end to the darkness, takes light down in there, is able to retrieve these riches. But verse 7, that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beast have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. What's his attitude towards mankind right here? It's pretty successful, man. It's got some power, the ability to overturn mountains. That's, that's interesting. It says he cuts out channels in the rock and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. And the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not mine. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. Well, what's Job saying here? And we've done all this amazing stuff. But what did we not uncover? We didn't find wisdom. We didn't find the, the truth by digging down in that cave, by exploring the depths of the ocean. How much more boldly can we say this chapter and yet still end with that? We've uncovered, we've been to the moon, if you believe that. But no, okay. we, you know, the earth is round. We know this now, if, if you believe that. So, but uh, we know so much more than Job. But I think verse 12 is still the same, but where shall wisdom be found? If we go to the moon and find a book, if we go to the moon and go, oh, all right, here's, here's true wisdom, here's truth, no. In fact, we could rewrite verse 14 and says, space exploration says it's not in me. The Mariana Trench says, it's not here, I don't have it. You fill them whatever you want. But let's jump down, even verse 22, Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it, with our ears. Don't you love the poetry of Job? So what's he saying? We have the sense to think, man, if you're dead, you know everything now, right? You have a full... Per- no, no, it's not there either. Verse 23, God understands the way to it. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and a portion of the waters by measure... When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So where's the wisdom? That's what it is. Where does it come from? God. God, exactly. So God alone is the source of wisdom and fear of the Lord is the only path to wisdom. Now in this context, when we say fear of the Lord, what do we mean here? Respect. Respect. Now, respect, it only means respect if we mean respect the right way. What does it mean to have respect for something? Be fearful of the retribution that you might receive. <laughs> fearful of retribution. 
That's not a bad way to think about it. Fearful. All right, so a lot of children have respect for their father for what reason? <laughs> Especially at a young age, <laughs> right? They know they know what he can, what he might do. All right, it's not until you're older and understand the wealth and value of instruction and protection and safety and security. You take all that for granted as a child. Respect when your child has a lot more to do with what we mean when we say fear, the fear kind of fear, not the respect kind of fear. You know what I'm saying? So the fear of the Lord then would mean you do what to the Lord? Submit. Oh, exactly. Submit. Submit to the Lord. That fear of the Lord means submit to the Lord. That is wisdom. All right. Chapter 29, the works of Job. Now this, this is fast. This Job makes me feel terrible. Um, when I read this section. So we'll, we'll walk through it quickly so we don't have to all feel terrible. Path. Path, yes. All right, Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. You feel the agony of that? Oh, that I could go back to the days when God cared. Mm. When his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, and I was... In my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were all around me. You can feel the agony in that. When my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. What's that going? The young men withdrew. What's that saying? Respectful. That's respect. Yeah. Oh, Joe, this is your spot. Right here. Now you take that spot. And the old men are doing what? Oh. Joe, you're here. Glad to see you. Come, come on in. You know, it's, it's a very respectful attitude. The voice of the nobles was hushed. The tongue struck the root of their mouths. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Why? Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. So what's he doing? What's Job known for in the city? Charity. Charity. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's not just giving an alm, though. He's, he's taking care of them. He's spreading out his strength, his power over them and blessing them. The blessing of him who was about to perish came to me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Well, what's the, what's the fangs of the unrighteous there? I mean, but in the real, this is the real world for Job. He's there's injustice happening in his city. Man, he's Batman. You know, in, in the book of Judges, he would have been one of the judges. Yeah. He's the guy grabbing the jawbone and going out to the field and saying, "All right, let's let's talk business. You gonna oppress these people? You're doing it over my dead body." You see all this stuff? It's like, wow, Job's not just some religiously nice guy in chapter one job is job's the hero job's the guy who makes the the the, the, 
I always mix up prey and predator for some reason. He's making the predator drop the prey. He's going to make sure that's not going to happen on his watch. Then he, he goes on about that, but let's uh, fill in some blanks. So Job had the respect of all people. Job defended the oppressed and downcast. And Job defeated the wicked. And this is Job. Great guy. But then read verse chapter 30, verse 1. But now they laugh at me. Men who were younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. I hear that. Men whose fathers he would have disdained to set with the dogs of the flock. All right, let's unpack that. What's the flock? Sheep, goats, possibly cattle in this scenario, but probably goats and sheep. That's common in this area. And so he's got, what were the dogs out there for? Probably herding, they're protecting. But uh, dogs in our culture and dogs in Jewish culture are not the same. When we see a dog, especially a friendly dog wagging his tail, what do we think? Aww. Like, no kidding, a little black Labrador puppy <laughs> wandered up to my family this week. And guess where that dog is right now? <laughs> it's in my house. Oh, for the days of Judaism. <laughs> when you would have seen that dog and spat. Like, oh, get that dog away from me. Curse it. Be that animal. Okay, that's not the world we live in. So it's kind of the opposite here. But that's how they viewed dogs. Dogs weren't man's best friend, you know, in this scenario. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't cast your pearls or you hold what is holy before dogs or cast your pearls before swine. It's in that category. So what's he saying about these fathers? He wouldn't want these guys hanging out with his dogs who he considers to be basically his worthless creatures, a necessary evil, so to speak. You know, like the guineas in my house. Necessary <laughs> evil. Hate those things. My wife loves them, though, so they're what special. What do with all these euphemisms from the uh, farms? I'd probably have a more peaceful life. <laughs> I love my life. I'm, I'm just kidding. I love my life. There's a lot of great. There's a lot of great. You know, it makes me relate more. Okay. So he's saying... There's people laughing at him who were so bottom. Uh, we're not just talking bottom in terms of poor. Because I mean, what's Job doing with the poor? He's taking care of those. This is the bottom in the other category. And you know what I mean. These are the people that, you know, they're, they're terrible people. They're, they're trash. You know, you know that they're the, the, you know, Jesus says don't judge and Sermon on the Mount and literally... The next paragraph says, but some people are dogs and swine. Don't waste your time with them. Those folks. It's like, those folks look at me and like they're glad they have it better. That's where he's at now. So, let's see. Job is the laughing stock of the worthless. Wow. All right, let's jump over to verse 19. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. 
I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up in the wind. You make me ride on it and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death into the house appointed for all the living. So to be thrown about in the wind, there's a famous fancy word for that that's in one of our um, hymns and it's buffeted. Like buffet? Or a buffet is, right? I know what a buffet is. <laughs> right. well, what's the glory of a buffet? You can keep coming back. You know, that's the whole point. You go back, you go back, you go back. To be buffeted is when something bad just comes back and comes back and comes back and comes back. It's the, the beating of the waves against the ship. Not in the gentle rolling sort of way, but in the just will this stop? Have you ever been to the ocean and you're in the waves and maybe the flag is red and you shouldn't have been out there? And you kind of get knocked off your feet and then every, you try to stand back up and it hits you again. And you ever, okay, I've done that. Anybody been in that moment? Oh, yeah. And you have that slight momentary panic where you realize you may have just made a decision that killed you. I have been in the water in that moment. Not in a long time. I will never do that again. Um, but that's to be buffeted. It's, that's literally the word is that the, the water constantly coming back. And Job's kind of making that reference there with the wind. Constantly tossing him around. Job has been buffeted by God. So he, here I was. I was this hero of the city. I was, If anyone in the city was worthy of praise, it would have been Job. Job's saying, but instead, now I'm the laughingstock of the worthless. I've been buffeted by God. And I think if we're honest, I think we can feel Job's pain here. I mean, do we ever feel like we do something really good and then it goes poorly? Maybe a little bit of anger that it went that way? You know, your, your effort was wasted? I remember, you know, <laughs> children are, are really good stories for things like this you know when you have two boys especially this can happen one would make something and the younger especially out of legos the younger would come up and do what kick it you know just poof or stomp it and or i would i remember and abby used to do this i'm gonna pick on you for a second i quit building legos with you when you were a toddler for this very reason we'd be sitting there together and we'd be making something big and you would you would look up and smile, and my spirit would drop. I knew what was happening. You know, we had just constructed this cool little house, and she would just stand up and, <laughs> you know, it was the happiest moment of your life as I was cursing internally. You know? <laughs> but that's that's how Job feels. He did all the, he did everything right. If anybody should have been blessed, should have had a pass on goodness, on evil. Just spare me. Let me. Pass over my house. If anybody deserved that, it was Job. That's how he ends that chapter. I, I've been buffeted by God instead. And then so chapter 31, the sorrow of Job. And we'll just we'll summarize this so we can get to the concluding points. Job laments that if only he had done evil, his current life would make sense. In fact, if you have a paragraph form um, to your Bible... You can look down there. How many ifs do you see starting the sentences? There's over a dozen. If only I'd done this. If I had done that. If I had 
done this or if I've done this over here, then it would make sense. But verse 23 is a good summary. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. He, he was terrified to do wrong. And uh, let's just see that last paragraph, 38 through 40. And it's just a summary of the whole thing. If my land had cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I had eaten its yield without payment, and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat, and foul words instead of barley. But that's not what happened. And the words of Job are ended. So how's Job's speech end? Just summarize that in simple, plain English sort of way. <laughs> Woe is me. That's not bad. Um, in other words, you're saying, I didn't deserve this, God. Now, there's a sense in which, though, is Job wrong? No, not really. Now, he is going to be corrected in what he said. Now, we'll, we'll cover that more fully in the next two weeks when we actually cover that section. But that's where Job leaves. Now, what I want to emphasize as we kind of conclude tonight, the wisdom of the righteous, I want to talk about what it means in their literature. So Job is the beginning of the wisdom literature in your Old Testament. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. Um, this is the first one, and they all have a similar feel with regard to wisdom. And I just want to make sure we're hearing that well. Job is emphasizing this pretty strongly. The most basic component of wisdom is absolute obedience. Absolute obedience to the Lord. I think as we said it last week, if the Lord showed up and gave you exact step-by-step -step plan for your life, this is the thing I want you to do. Um, I, I asked, you know, would, would you want him to do that? Would you want to know what the plan was? And I think everybody in the room, myself included, is like, well, of course I would. But then what if the plan is, all right, I want you to get cancer and spend many years of your life suffering and then die in agony, but the whole time blessing my name. That's my plan A for your life. Um, how many of us would say, here I am, send me, as Isaiah did? What would Job say? Job would have said, here I am, send me. But I don't like it. <laughs> but he had done it. Because he held fast his integrity. That's the idea here. The most basic component of wisdom is absolute obedience to the Lord. We have a tendency um, to put caveats on our obedience. We'll obey the Lord in anything he calls us to do, so long as it makes sense in my system. Well, it makes sense to me. As long as I can understand the wisdom in it, I'll do it. Job didn't understand the wisdom in this. He never does. He doesn't get an answer in the end. He just gets God's presence in the end. Second, the fear of the Lord is to live in submission to him. The fear of the Lord is to live in submission to him. All right, last section, and this is mostly coming from Job's defense of himself in chapter 29. Um, the wisdom of God leads a man 
to avoid evil and to fight against it. See, there's really two different things when they're related. To avoid evil is how we usually think about righteousness. Right? We, we make a list of right and wrong, a list of things. Don't do those things. That's righteous living before the Lord. That's half of righteous living before the Lord. Um, when Job's defending himself, he actually spends more time not talking about what he avoided, but talking about what? What he destroyed. The evil he alleviated. The burdens he removed. The wicked that he stopped. That he ended. So you have both sides of this, even in the Sermon on the Mount, in the New Testament, where Jesus says you have to have righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have both you know, what we might call ethical righteousness on the inside, this I have to do good things for the right reason, but also the first half is actually about how I treat my neighbor, which is summed up by love, right? Remember this in the Sermon on the Mount? So really the wisdom literature is already setting the stage for what the New Testament will present as our model of righteousness. So there's really, you know, the more you study the Old Testament, I think what you'll learn is that the difference between the ethical practice of the Old Testament and the ethical practice of the New Testament, the difference is negligible. It's really the same. We just see it differently in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was already there. Just, there's this tendency for us to make it about works. And the Old Testament, of course, fought against that hard. In the New Testament, it's obvious. But the idea of how we live in wisdom before the Lord is really the same in both places. Absolute obedience, meaning we avoid evil regardless of our circumstances and we strive against evil regardless of our circumstances so think about Job. he used to fight for the innocent what do you think he's doing in this season of suffering remember what he did the one time the guys were going too far and he said "Mm -mm, if you keep going down that route guys it's not going to work out well for you remember that in chapter was that 13 i think he's still Standing in the position of prophet, trying to get them to repent, even in the midst of his suffering. What I'm saying is Job holds fast his integrity, not just in that he avoids evil, but he even maintained his position of fighting against it, even in that position. All right, well, next week we'll pick up with Elihu, which will be a very interesting discussion. And then after that, God will speak, which will be the end of the discussion. So um, good things to come. Any questions so far? God's goodness? It's Is that what you mean? Yes. So does it answer the question? In the end, does the book answer the question about whether or not God is good? And unfortunately, the answer in the book of Job is no, it does not. Um, Job's answer is obey God either way. The New Testament is, no, yeah, God is good. We have to see this from a full perspective. There's nothing in this life that compares to the glory that's to be revealed. All things do work together for good for those who are called by God. And, you know, love God and are called according to his purpose. So, yes, ultimately the Bible will answer the question and say, yes, God is good. He's benevolent. But Job, technically, the point of this book is, no, you serve God either way. Whether you see it, whether you can perceive it or not, because if, if we make God being good a requirement 
for our obedience to the Lord, then we just made our obedience subjective to our perception of reality. And in, I'm thinking in the converse of that. Okay. We, we think it's not good, and we, we actually put it in that humanistic box because we say, well, if, if he did this to me and I don't, he didn't have a reason for a reason I can't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, that's what we say, yes. And I'm saying, I think it's important to know there, but I don't know if the Job answers it. You're saying it doesn't. Yeah, I'm saying the book of Job doesn't. The Bible does, yeah. just not in the book of Job. We, we need the bigger picture of the whole scriptures to see how, how the Bible really answers that question. Okay, here's what I'm saying. Shouldn't Job have thought, in addition to thinking, well, I'm going to obey God, and I'm going to do Right, which is what he's going to basically get in trouble for with Elihu, is that part of the argument. We'll, we'll cover that a little bit next week as we, we get into Elihu's conversation. Yeah, that's where Job's wrong. He shouldn't really even question God's goodness. He did. He never was disloyal to the Lord, but he did question his goodness. And he's wrong, but it doesn't really explain how God can be good and these things happen. We need a bigger New Testament picture to, to answer that question. So, it's, it's a fascinating topic, though. And like I said at the very beginning, the book of Job is not concerned about the global theodicy, the, the big-level defense of God, but really how you deal with it personally um, and how Job is dealing with it personally. In the end, just submit to the Lord, obey him, keep his commandments, as the same thing Ecclesiastes will end with. Okay, any other, any other questions? Okay. Well, any question? And then if not... Oh, circumstances. Regardless of circumstances. Is that all blank, or is that what I, just what I said? Avoid evil regardless of the circumstances. Against evil regardless of the circumstances. In other words... Keep being Job, whether you're in the season of blessing or in the season of cursing. The Lord gives or the Lord takes away. You do this either way. Probably a catchy way to say that. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. You obey him either way. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, easy rhymes. Okay, prayer request. Um, one of the football players, I can't remember his name, he got a call today. Ooh, ooh, okay. And she's not very old. So I, I don't know the name. Okay. So, little girl, cancer. So, we'll pray more. All right. Well, let's uh, close in prayer and we'll be, be done. Father, we thank you for tonight. I pray that you would help us to trust you. We know that you are good, that you are all powerful, that your purposes for us are good and for your glory. God, I pray that you would help us to obey. Help us to be faithful regardless of the circumstances. Help us to live with integrity, being um, consistent to obey and restraining and not doing evil, but also in fighting against it in our own lives. Pray you'd help us to follow you in all of these things. Let us take up our cross, knowing that there is a glory to be revealed on the other side that is worth it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.